Be in prayer for uh, the churches around us, friends. I know that uh, pastors, elders have had to make some very difficult decisions about what to do with their congregations and how to instruct them to respond to the different uh, regulations that have been placed on churches today. We just found out before the service started uh, that Pastor John MacArthur of Grace uh, Church down south that uh, they had made a public declaration today that the governor's commands to not meet were uh, going beyond the reach of what God has allowed governments to do and that they would be meeting in person. And the city has responded by letting them know that they're shutting all their power off this morning. So uh, they're going to meet anyway. And thankfully, we were joking, uh, if you've been to Grace, they don't use a lot of instrumentation. They don't have PowerPoints. So they'll be less hindered by it than a lot of the churches in the area who can't run their smoke machines and laser lights this morning if they get their, their congregation's power turned off. But you know, this is some real stuff, church. We are dealing with very difficult times. So be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in different places who are struggling against uh, the principalities and the powers that would wage war against worship and would want to keep the church from gathering together. Before we get into the word this morning, uh, I want to give an announcement to those who are members of the church. Um, you are always welcome to come and worship with us, whether or not you are a covenant member here. But we do urge people towards covenant membership because it's, a, it's definitely a more involved and meaningful way to be connected to the people around you here. And so if you're a covenant member, you're going to be receiving an email this week, which will contain a breakdown of a proposal that we started to share with you uh, at the beginning of the year when we had our annual business meeting in February. That proposal is for um, a rebuild of our bathrooms, our kitchen, and also the hallway there in the fellowship hall. And then it also includes provisions for a more safe walkway that we want to design and build coming up from Somerset. So our friends down at the apartment complex who want to come and join us for worship don't have to uh, do the dangerous walk of coming up the uh, the, the steep stairway there, the steep uh, driveway there. So we want to be good stewards of what God has given, and we are uh, aware that right now with things as they are in the culture, uh, we don't want to spend money in an irresponsible way, given that many churches are hurting right now, and it's very difficult for some to make budget. But we have been very blessed through this time that our giving has not tailed off, that the saints here have continued to support the work that Christ is doing. Um, those who have come to us for needs of help, we've been able to meet those needs, um, and there have been fewer than we thought there would be. So we have a surplus of benevolence funds if we need to utilize that. So uh, as elders, we prayed about this. We don't believe this is going to put us in a bad position to go forward with this build project. In fact, the idea that we're not doing as many ministries as we normally would in some ways makes it easier for us to do these builds because we'll be interfering with fewer ministries that otherwise would be running at the time. So we want you to take that information. We want you to pray about it sincerely and uh, then reply to the email if you are a member of the church with either a yay or a nay. Um, please, if you, if you disagree with the proposal, let us know. Um, we're not you know, bashful about hearing opposing opinions. That's okay. Uh, this is uh, something that congregation is going to decide on together. But uh, we do need a quorum, which means at least two-thirds of our membership needs to vote before we can say yes or no, we're going to do this or we're not going to do it. So um, we'll be sending that out this week. See uh, in your inbox. Make sure you don't let that go into your trash. Make sure you, you read that, pray about it, and then respond so that we will, uh, we will know where you all stand on that, okay? And I, for one, will not miss the uh, butterfly tiles in the kitchen when all that is said and done if, if we do get to go forward with this bill. There's a lot of things that we hope um, to do to make church life a lot more enjoyable around here because of uh, improvements to the facilities. 
Well, it's been a long time since our nation has existed in such a divided state. We are struggling with so many huge topics right now. Uh, there is a, a great de degree of unrest among the people of America. There is racial tensions that are causing the people of America to feel extremely divided. There's the constant threat of, of judgment if you don't go along with what the media is telling you to think and feel and believe. There's the looming president, uh, ele presidential election in November where we're going to decide the next leader of this country, which is in such a precarious position right now. And of course, party lines are straight divided on that. There's so much disagreement about what kind of leadership this country needs. And unfortunately, because uh, men are sinful, the candidates we have to choose from are rarely moral and upstanding candidates. The conflicting reports regarding the severity of the pandemic we're all striving against right now has people divided over how serious the threat is and how we should best deal with it, how much we should, uh, we should be cautious and how much we should move forward with life as we know it. So there's a lot of division even within homes and between husbands and wives and, and within churches. Our state has mandated that we stay away from each other. So we are literally going against an emergency mandate right now to even be gathered together in this place because of the orders that have been given out to us by the leaders of the land. How can a nation hope to have any kind of unity under these strenuous circumstances? And I would argue that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, peace at a time like this would be impossible. How important is unity? To Jesus, unity is extremely important. Jesus has existed in all time as a triune God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they have experienced unity from the very beginning. And that unity is something that Christ wants for his bride. It is Jesus' great desire to see the church, people for whom he has suffered, to see them united in love and truth. If the church becomes a divided place, then it is going to reflect poorly on Jesus, who is the basis of the church's unity. If the church allows itself to be split in two or three or four, then it's going to derail the church's ability to function in a healthy and holy way. How can we be a sanctuary if we are not united to Christ and united with one another? As chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians progresses, Paul's going to tackle some specific threats to the church of Corinth. But today we're going to focus on verse 10 as it speaks to the issue of church unity in general. To address the issue of unity in a broader sense, we're going to need to look beyond the borders of the Corinthian conflict itself. We're going to look at the kinds of divisions that often plague God's church and why those divisions are a serious danger to the name of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your scriptures open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm just reading verse 10, and then we're going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing over this time in his scripture together. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Let's ask the Lord God to bless the reading and the study of his word today. Father, we bow before you humble, but also grateful, Lord, that that what we just read is not a mystery to those in whom you have placed the Spirit. We can understand what you have given to us because you have given us eyes to see. You have given us hearts that can receive. You have given us a desire for truth that did not exist before you came and interrupted our lives. 
and called us to yourself. And so I praise you, Lord God, for the transformation that you are working, which is both, both positional, Lord, we are sanctified in you right now as your believers, but is also progressive, God, that you are moving us practically towards a better kind of life that better emulates the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be humble today. I pray that the things that we hear and think upon would stay with us, Father, that it would facilitate a kind of meditation that lingers in our lives, that our minds would not just come back to Jesus from time to time, but that our lives would be invoked or enveloped in Jesus from the beginning of our day to the end of the night when we put our head on our pillow and drift off to sleep. God, even invade our dreams with the glory of your beauty. We love you, God, and we don't want to be without you. And so I pray that as we study together, that you will clearly be here with us and that you will encourage us, Lord God, and that the things of wisdom that we hear from this book would far outshine any wisdom that we hear from the philosophers of this world. Thank you for all that you do, Lord. May your grace abound in Jesus' name. Amen. With the appeal that is made in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul draws an end to the introduction material of the letter and he transitions to the body. The section is framed as a heartfelt request to the people in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. Now, the Greek word that is translated appeal here is pronounced parakalo. Parakalo means to come alongside someone for the purpose of supporting them and encouraging them. To come alongside someone is different than to come down on someone. Now, the Apostle Paul is coming beside his brothers and sisters here with the intention of helping them to improve their situation in their walk with their Savior. Parakolo might be familiar to you. You might have heard something like that in the past, sitting in a church somewhere, because it's the same Greek root word for the word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit as the helper that God will send for his church. Parakletos is the one that is used to describe the Holy Spirit as a helper. And so this appeal represents an urgent request made by the Apostle Paul, just short of a demand, intended to assist the people of Corinth in their sanctification. Now, why does Paul appeal here? Why doesn't he just make the demand? Isn't he an apostle set apart for the work of Jesus Christ? Why doesn't he just instruct them to be united? And so much as unity is inseparable from the heart. A heart not unified to the whole is a dissenting heart. No matter how much behavior might conform in the meantime, if someone's heart is not conformed, if the heart is not united, then there will eventually be division. Unity is a very tricky thing because it's not something that you can do by yourself, is it? Unity takes teamwork. You might be absolutely committed to unity. But if the person that you are trying to be united to is not, then you have a problem. No matter how much I personally work towards unity, if I don't have a willing partner, unity is not going to happen the way I want it to. Unity means likeness. It means collaboration. It means cooperation. It is two or more parties working toward a sense of oneness. Now, interestingly, unity can be forced... Think about it. There is a nation that is often in the news for all the wrong reasons in the world today, but it's hard to deny that they are among the most unified nations in the world. North Korea. 
Why are they so unified? Because they are ruled unilaterally by a generational dictator who determines every aspect of his nation's culture. He has all the guns, he has all the power and resources, and he insists that his citizens view him as a kind of demigod who is not capable of error. If you resist, you'll be thrown into prison or you're going to be executed. And so his subjects, they conform. Because if they don't, they will die. And so on the surface, there is great unity in North Korea. But is that the kind of attitude that Paul wants the Corinthians to have as they aspire to unity? It is not. Unity can be forced to a degree, but not to the degree that it satisfies God. Paul, who is of the same mind as the Savior, appeals to his fellow Christians because it is his desire to help them see how incompatible their personal divisions are to the gospel that has saved them. Once they see that, Paul hopes that they will abandon their selfish attitudes so that Christ might be better glorified in their lives as they gladly draw nearer to him together. And that doesn't happen, by the way, without the intervention that God brings upon our hearts. The way that King John un forces his people to be unified is different than the loving grace that God pours into the heart of a non-believer that makes his hard heart turn soft and calls him to a unity that before was impossible in his life. We need to also notice here that this is not an appeal made to strangers or to acquaintances. Paul calls these believers his brothers. There is good reason for them to be unified. The rebellious individualism that used to define these Corinthians has been replaced. It's been replaced by a new identity, one defined in very familial terms. The church in Corinth, like every church in the world, exists because of a miraculous work that God does in the lives of individuals who make up the gathering of the church. Each member of that congregation had at some point heard the gospel message preached to them. They had come to know that all of mankind was created by a single God, a God of truth, a God of love, a God who did not create and then abandon, but a God who is active and working among his people, not an elusive God, but a God who had intentions to make his people a representation of who he is. They had also learned of their own personal sin, that each of them was guilty of breaking the laws that this God had established for his creation. And that by breaking those laws, they had greatly dishonored this perfect God who had made them. They had heard the gospel. They had been told that their sins were punishable by death. Because God gives life, to sin against him is rebellion. It is not simply breaking a code or a command. It is to rebel against the very greatest being in all of existence. So it doesn't just warrant punishment or slap on the wrist. Sin against God warrants death. It warrants that our life be taken from us. They had heard this. This gospel that had come to the Corinthians, both to the Jewish Corinthians and the Gentile Corinthians, to people from all walks of life, this gospel had shown them that they weren't created by God just to follow rules. They were created by God to love Him and be loved by Him. Their sin had done more 
than just break laws. It had broken the relationship that they were created to have with God himself. But Paul and the apostles preached the good news to them. The very God that they were rebelling against had made a way for their offenses to be covered and their relationship with God to be restored. This was made possible when God's Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world to dwell among the creatures that He had created. This Jesus accomplished the impossible. He kept the law of God perfectly. Unlike every other human being who'd ever walked the earth, He never offended God. He never disrespected the Lord. He always kept His commandments proactively, and He walked in perfect harmony with God's will. He lived the life that every other human fails to live. In an act of grace and mercy, the likes of which the world had never seen, Jesus Christ allowed himself to be punished as if he were a criminal, as if he were a sinner, as if he had offended the God of all creation. Jesus was tried. He was falsely convicted of sin. He was treated like a horrible criminal, whipped beaten and mocked, publicly shamed before all who, who looked upon him. And at the peak of it all, Jesus was nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up in the air. He was crucified. The most shameful and painful death the imaginations of the Romans could think up. Jesus suffered this most horrific death for a reason. Any sinner who put their faith and trust in him any sinner with a humble heart who would repent of their sin and surrender to God and receive his forgiveness would therefore be forgiven by God because of the work that Jesus Christ did on that cross. They would be washed clean of their sin and the relationship between them and God would no longer be broken. In fact, the relationship between God and man would undergo a a huge transformation whereby that individual used to be worthy of wrath, they would now be worthy of the love of God because they were washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. They would be invited back into the kingdom of God, no longer rebels, but more than just citizens, they would be welcomed into the kingdom of God so that they might even be the children of the king. After Jesus died on the cross, he showed that he was more than merely a man by raising again to life on the third day, just as he had promised he would. And all who trust in him become born again. Spiritually, they are resurrected with him. And one day in the future, their bodies, though they might taste the corruption here on earth, will be resurrected to a state of eternal life. These believers are no longer rebels to God. They are now his own children. And when Paul touches on this topic in his letter, when he calls these Corinthians brothers, it harkens back to other things that he has written. We might recall the way that he addresses the Galatian church in his letter to them in chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul 
in making this appeal to the Corinthians is not writing to strangers or acquaintances. He is writing to fellow brothers and sisters who share in one father, who rules over them with grace and truth. Real unity should reflect a mutual care for one another. And we see that in the example of Paul here. That he does not just lead the Corinthians, but he loves them. He wants what is best for them. He cares for their heart and their well-being. He also cares for the testimony that they have been saved to bear. That they are Christians called after Christ means that their actions will reflect on this Jesus who saved them. So this mutual care must define our unity. I remember when I was a kid, I used to fight a lot with my little brother, although it wasn't much of a fight. Uh, not going to brag or anything, but my brother was a lot smaller than me, so we didn't, we didn't really get into it too hard. But when my mom would find us fighting, she had this punishment that I could not stand. She would make us stand there and hug each other for five minutes straight. <laughs> You're going to be unified whether you like it or not. I was just trying to punch this kid in the face and now I'm supposed to cuddle with him? I don't think so. That's not how my heart is feeling right now. We couldn't wait to push each other away. It did not really produce peace in us. It didn't really result in unity. It just changed a boxing match into a very awkward and lame wrestling match for five minutes. Paul doesn't want to twist the arm of the Corinthians and make them act unified or else. No, he desires for them to be bound to one another in the unity of true brotherly love. The apostle is about to handle a sensitive subject, but as he is handling it out of love for his spiritual family, he does it with a soft heart. So he appeals to them lovingly and to their benefit. But his appeal is more than just advice. It's not just a suggestion to them. As brothers in Christ, these believers are also under the authority of one father. So Paul speaks not only to what is best, but also to what is right. If they refuse to be unified, if they resist this unity, then they are resisting the very God that saved them. So he appeals to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to appeal to someone in the name of someone else? Particularly here, Paul appeals to them in the name of Jesus Christ. When things are done in the name of someone else, then there is appeal made to one who has a common authority over not only the author, but the audience. The greater authority, Jesus, amplifies the force of the appeal. He's reminding them that he's not sharing with them his opinions, but he is coming to them as one who is also trying to live unified under the commands of Christ. Secondly, there's a representative aspect to this appeal. The action commanded is tied to the higher authority who is issuing the command and failure to take it to heart will reflect back on the one who is ultimately making the appeal. So a divided church does not properly represent the name of Christ Jesus. In fact, it does it dishonor. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but this is the 10th time in the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians that the name of Jesus is evoked. There truly is power in the name of Jesus, but not in the way that a lot of people in the world today think there is name in the power of Jesus, a power in the name of Jesus. It is not a weapon or a tool 
to be used for our own will. And this is important for us to understand here. The name of Jesus points to the power that Jesus has to make sure his will will be done. So it's not like a magical word. We don't just believe in our minds that whenever we attach the name of Jesus to something that we speak it into existence or that we declare and guarantee that it will be true. That would be quite presumptuous of us. The name of Jesus has power to fulfill the will of Jesus. It is not some objective power that can be used to accomplish the will of man, whatever that might be. Evoking the name of Jesus doesn't tap you into an indiscriminate tool or power that you might use for whatever you wish. I like what John MacArthur has to say about this. He says, when I pray in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean I ask whatever I want and then say, in Jesus' name, amen, and then that guarantees it. It means that I say, this I pray because I believe this is what Christ would want because this is consistent with his will as I understand it. So when you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you're praying, Jesus, I believe this is what you want for me. But you're also declaring him your king and your Lord. So if you're wrong about that, he has every right to come in and change your mind about it. And God will change your mind from time to time about the things that you want and the things that you pray for. By appealing to this church in the name of Jesus, Paul is representing the power and the authority of the one whom he serves. The God you serve desires you to be unified, so be unified. He's also making sure that they don't disregard what he says just because they might hold a grudge against him. Paul's going to preach next week on the specific kinds of division that happened in the Corinthian church. And we're going to see that not everybody was on board with Paul's teaching. Some people preferred other teachers within the church. And so Paul is making sure by appealing to the name of Jesus that the people who receive this letter don't say, you know, it's just from the Apostle Paul and he's not really my guy anyway. He didn't even baptize me. So maybe that applies to you guys. But uh, I'm one of the guys who follow Cephas or I'm with Apollos over here. No, these are the words of Jesus Christ, the one under whom the whole church uh, must submit their hearts. But this should also be a reminder to the Corinthians that they are called to operate according to the very same name. Backing up just a little bit to make sure we see this verse in its proper context, with your Bibles open, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, the one that precedes the verse we're looking at today, where Paul wrote, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What were you called into? Fellowship with God himself. Think about your salvation right now, Christian. If Jesus saved you, what did he save? What was he preserving in the act of saving you? Did Jesus primarily save your freedoms? Did he save you so that you wouldn't have to be punished? Was that the main focus of his salvation for you? I have been set free from God's wrath. I have been released from the consequences of my actions. Hallelujah, I'm saved. I've been given rights and resources that will improve my life. Nothing that I just said is, is incorrect, by the way. Those are all true things if you are a believer in Jesus. But they are only part of the picture. Friends, freedom is not the highest virtue. In fact, freedom was in part responsible for the fall that separated you from God in the first place. We were talking in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, and it was brought up that, I think Paul brought this up, 
that we will be less free in heaven in some regards than we are now. Think about that. You will not be free to sin against God. So your options are greatly limited compared to what you can do today. And hallelujah for that. Praise God for that limiting. I will be so much happier when I am no longer free to walk away from the God who is my joy and my salvation and my comfort and my peace. So Jesus didn't just save you to freedom. The thing that Jesus salvaged when he saved you was the very relationship that you were made for to begin with. He salvaged the connection you need to have with God that you could not have because of your sin. I was spared from being cast away thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ. I was returned to a state of peace with my God. I have been given access to my creator again. I can go to him at any time and pray to him. I can discuss things with him. He will show me the truth that I need through his word. And it won't be a complete mystery to me because God has redeemed me to a right relationship with God. That is the glory of salvation. The whole premise for Christ's Fellowship with his church is the work that he did on the cross. God's son makes a right relationship with God possible. So drawn near again, no longer slaves, but children of the king, these Corinthians are to seek a unity with one another as Christ has won a unity between them and their savior. There is much freedom in that fellowship. There is much responsibility as well. Our behavior reflects back on the one who made us, who we are who made us who we are and calls us by his own name. And that firmly in Paul's, is in Paul's mind as he focuses his appeal down. And so as we work through the words of verse 10, he says that all of you agree. Paul's appeal in verse 10 asserts really three ideas, two positives, which are almost the same restated, and then one negative idea that's sandwiched in between. So here when he, when he, when he urges them, when he appeals to them that they might agree, the Greek is actually a compound. There's many different words there. He says, I, I appeal to you that you might say the same things. That you might literally speak the same words. Friends, biblical unity is not built on superficiality. It is not that we sound the same, that we look the same, that we earn the same, that we eat the same, that we dress the same, that we come from the same place. That's not true biblical unity. Sadly, friends, we often give much greater weight to superficial things than we realize that we do. Right now, there's this movement going on in our culture right now. I urge you to be very leery of it. Black Lives Matter movement, on the surface, appears to be something noble. It appears to be an effort to make people care about their neighbor no matter what they look like. But if you really dig into what the Black Lives Matter movement is about... It is founded on principles of Marxism. If that doesn't worry you, let me, let me share with you. Marxism is fundamentally opposed to Christianity. Marxism cannot survive if Christianity is doing what Christianity is supposed to do. So the Black Lives Matter movement is becoming hugely and wildly popular because people stay on the surface of things. On the superficial surface, it seems like a good movement, but deep down inside, it is not. One of the things that they assert on that, the, the website for Black Lives Matter, if you look at their core values, is that they, they believe in the dismantling of the nuclear family. They believe that husband and wife raising children is not the way that we should view society and that it's a damage to society to think that that's the way families should be. That they believe that the whole village should raise the child 
And that if we put too much emphasis on moms and dads, uh, then what are we doing? We're undermining the, the health of the community. That works really well if you're a Marxist, because then you put the raising of your children into the hands of somebody else. But God has given your children to you as a stewardship, friends. Think deeper about the things that you encounter in your culture today. We can't be content for a superficial unity. The unity that we, we, we want to have, that we should strive for as a church, must go to the heart. And so the Apostle Paul says that we should speak the same things. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to hold to the same things concerning our belief in Jesus and our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about the fellowship that we spoke of in verse 9. Our fellowship is based on Jesus Christ and his work, not on superficial things that we happen to hold in common. Our fellowship will be constantly vulnerable if the only thing that links us together is our interest in music or our shared baseball team or our history of having gone to the same high school together. Those are ways that people connect, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's what binds you together in unity, then the strings are quite loose, brothers and sisters. We need something stronger than that. We need Christ to bind us together. And we need to confess the same things about the Son of God. To agree is the first positive command. You will look, we will look now at the, the negative command that follows it, that there be no divisions among you. The word for divisions there is schismata. You might think of that word and say, well, I think there's an English word like it. Schism, right? The word schismata actually speaks of a rending of the flesh or a tearing apart of two types of fabric, something ripping away from another thing. We are called to not have divisions like this in the church where we pull away from one another. Can you see why Jesus doesn't want this kind of division? Can you see the destruction that it brings to the church that he has built? Some argue that the divisions in the Corinthian church are the main thesis of the whole letter. Now, on this point, I would disagree. I think the main thesis of this whole letter is the church's holiness, that they are to be set apart from the secular culture that most of the Corinthians came out of when they were saved. The reason the problem of factions and divisions is brought up here as the first point of contention in the letter is to establish this fact. Your battle is not to be between one another. Your battle is against sin and death. The slave master of the world and the culture that you've been called out of, that's where your battle is out. Don't waste your energy and time fighting one another on things that don't matter. When we are supposed to be a united body battling the sin that would press in on the church every chance it gets. Our sister Tanya just received a new liver. Praise the Lord. I am blown away by the things that medical advances have been able to do these days. Praise God for that. Whenever someone goes through such a radical procedure, there are a number of hurdles they've got to overcome. There are a number of potential pitfalls that could spoil that process. So they've got to be concerned with, is this organ compatible with her body? Is the donor healthy in such a way that she won't be bringing a different kind of problem with her liver into her body? Will there be an infection because of the openness of the wound as they did the procedure and the length? She was under the knife for, for 11 hours or so. Will the wounds heal properly? Will she be able to handle that kind of physical trauma? But the biggest risk is that the body itself will not recognize that new organ as being part of the body. The biggest risk, and it's a risk that continues 
for years after a surgery like this, is that the body will begin to fight against itself. That it will not identify that liver as part of the body and it will try to harm the very thing it needs to survive. A church divided tends to do the very same thing. A church divided looks at a brother or sister as an outsider and treats them accordingly. And then people who are to be bound together in love and care and consideration shun one another or gossip about one another or treat one another with contempt or a lack of love. And then the very unity that should be one of the greatest blessings of the church is cast to the side for the sake of division. Divisions are one of the prime distractions that prevents churches from really engaging in fruitful gospel ministry. When we are too busy fighting against one another, how can we expect to have adequate time and energy to fight the good fight and battle lostness? Divisions can creep in subtly, often without even being noticed to a healthy church body. We see divisions in the church over offenses when we fail to show one another a lack of love. Often we are not quick to forgive one another as Christ was quick to forgive us. And that bitterness creates a rift until coldness turns to shunning and people who are to be bound together are no longer even on speaking terms. So offenses that are not dealt with in a biblical way can become like a festering infection in the body of Christ. There, there's often division over leadership abilities. And this is the problem at Corinth that Paul's about to address in his letter. Much of this is going to be expanded upon next Sunday. There can be divisions over beliefs and doctrines where people cannot see eye to eye and refuse to go to the word as their true source of information and standard by which they live. There can be division over vision and direction. How should our church Step forward into its future. What are we called to do as God's people? What do we put our time and energy into? And there can be divisions over even pettier things like preferences. What kind of music style are we going to have? How, how do we paint the church building? Or, or, or uh, in, in, in what ways are, are we going to structure our services? There's a lot of different ways that we might fight over things that are just debatable things that don't need to become uh, divisive issues in our hearts. But in contrast, Paul desires that there be no divisions among the people. I think it's, it's worth taking a moment now to pause and to ask a question that might have come into some of your minds as we started talking about this unity. Are denominations, church denominations, are they a, a violation of this appeal? Is it wrong for Christ's church to be cut up in these different Groups of Christians that tend to have fellowship together, but not necessarily with all the other believers. Typically, that means any formal association or alliance of churches. When people think about denominations, they usually don't discern between different words that might describe the associations that churches hold together. But there are some differences. A denomination is a subgroup under Christianity that operates with a common uh, tradition, name, and identity. There's typically some formal leadership involved in a denomination, and there's an authority structure that dictates to some degree the behaviors of the local churches that are involved in the greater group. An association or a network of churches is somewhat different. It is more loosely connected. Often there isn't as much of a leadership structure. The unity is more goal-based as far as let's accomplish some things together as churches and less doctrinally uh, uh, driven. Fellowship between like-minded congregations is often called an association or a network. 
And there are also what we call conventions, which is something that our church is a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention. A convention keeps the authority at the local church level, recognizing that God's authority is described as being administered through elders at the local church level. But there is fellowship and there are some goals accomplished when churches come together in a convention. Now, are these denominations wrong? We have to think forward to heaven. Will there be denominations there? Will there be a Presbyterian barrio in heaven? Will the Lutherans hang out on the east side? This is, this is not how heaven is going to be, all right? It's not how heaven's going to be. There will be no denominations in heaven, but we are not quite there yet, are we, friends? I wish that we could be perfectly unified as God's church. What a glory it would be to him. And it grieves my heart that we are often so divided, and yet we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we cannot be on the same page with important matters. But that does not mean that denominations are absolutely useless or that we should cast them aside. Denominations are helpful because we don't want to have superficial connections with one another. We want to speak the same thing. And how can we speak the same thing if we don't know what each other believes, right? Denominations are a way for us to approach a church body and to have a reasonable confidence that because I know what this denomination believes, that I can expect the churches within that denomination or association or convention to believe in the same direction. Now, we should never be so lazy as to just think because a church is in a good denomination, they're a good church. That's not necessarily the case. But if you want to have real fellowship with one another, we need to get down into the basic principles of what we believe and sometimes the finer details of what we believe. And denominations help us to discern. If some denomination says that they believe that the Word of God is not inerrant, that it is not breathed out by the Holy Spirit and it is not trustworthy, should we call that church brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that a church that we should try to endeavor to join arms with and to do ministry together with if they don't even believe that the word of God is God's word to us? We have to be discerning, friends. We cannot just be indiscriminately unified with everyone. So denominations are not the be-all, end-all. And denominations, friends, will come and go because they are instituted by flawed human beings. When is division not only permissible but necessary? It is necessary when the solas are violated. Do you remember the series we just went through recently where we spoke of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation? Those reformers had to go through the difficult process, the heartbreaking process of realizing that the people they had considered brothers and sisters in the Lord did not follow the word as God called them to. And the, the difference that they, differences that they had were not just in small little practical applications or in matters that were obscure or not completely clear in Scripture. They believed that salvation was a work of God plus the work of man. They could not continue to fellowship under that kind of doctrinal error. And so not only were they allowed to leave the church, but they were convicted of heart that they had to leave that church because reform was not happening within the Roman Catholic structure. So there are times when we must divide from other people that would like to call us brother and sister. When the work and person of Jesus Christ is corrupted, we have got to cease fellowship. There is, there is no way that we could come 
alongside Iglesia Ni Cristo, which teaches Jesus as an exalted man and not an eternal God, there's no way we could come alongside them and work together arm in arm as brothers. That word brother is so cheaply used today. We need to be a little more careful about that because Christ has made us brothers by his blood. And that is an important designation. We should be careful about that. If somebody is teaching that the Lord God who is over all is one of many gods, that's, that's not the truth of Scripture. That is a fundamental problem that cannot be overcome and overlooked. We've got to stand against that sort of a teaching. And that's why our church could not have fellowship with the Church of Latter-day Saints. Because if you really look at Latter-day Saint doctrine, they believe that every human being, if they are holy enough, can attain to the status of godhood and can one day be what our God is to us, to other planets in some other part of the universe. We can't stand for that. That's not something we can say amen to. And that, those divisions don't mean that we treat those other people as if they are less than us, or without love, or that we cease to give the gospel to them. But it means we cannot be united to them the way that we as brothers and sisters are united together today. At this point, I think it would be very useful to express some of the difficulties that we've been experiencing in our own denominational ties. We have been a part of the Southern Baptist Convention since the inception of this church, and this church was planted out of another Southern Baptist Convention church. I grew up in large part once I started to follow Christ in Southern Baptist denominations, and for many years I've watched this denomination. It's not really technically a denomination. It's a convention. I've watched them do some very good things in the world for Christ. There was a time period about 40 years ago where they really stood for doctrinal inerrancy, where they took a firm stand against the corruptions that were going on in many churches that were sliding into liberalism. And so I am grateful for the work that Southern Baptists have done over the years to try to hold the churches involved with this convention to a standard that is based on the word and not the opinions of men. But we are in a time period right now where the Southern Baptist Convention is not doing what they used to do as well as they did. There are several divisions that are going on, two of which are of great concern to us. Uh, the doctrines of grace have become a bit of a contention amongst uh, Southern Baptists, whereas uh, a church that teaches that, that Jesus elects those to salvation, that there is a, a, an atonement that happens on the cross, which is specifically for the lost who are called to be saved, uh, that is creating division among churches in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. There is division over social justice. And the critical race theory that we've been talking about some from the pulpit here, the idea that our identity is found primarily in our race or our culture rather than in Christ and in Christ alone. So as our denomination wrestles with these things, we've been keeping a very careful eye on them. We've also been praying greatly about these issues, and we pray that you would join us in that. Our hope is to remain with these brothers and sisters. But if the standard that really defines us as Christians begins to waver in this convention and we don't see a willingness to battle against that wavering, then we may well have to consider moving away from an association with them. Now remember, we are Christians with a big C and Baptists with a little b. So that is not really what makes us who we are. Christ is what makes us who we are. The advantage of being a part of a convention like the Southern Baptist Convention is that they don't have particular control over us. I don't have a, a bishop warning me that if I don't get online with Black Lives Matter things, then I, I might lose my paycheck. We are an autonomous church. 
And the Southern Baptist Convention is set up in such a way that the local church has authority, which really as it should be. And so we have not been pressured to capitulate to some of the things that some of the churches in this convention are, are, are bending to. But it, it is still our problem because we are now associated with a, a denomination that is not necessarily uh, standing for the truth and holding to orthodox Christianity the way that we desire it to do so. So we have to be concerned about these things, friends. And from a pur purely expositional standpoint, the problem with divisions in Corinth is not a denominational issue. It's not about something going on beyond the borders. It is a local church issue, which in some ways is more important because people interact with the local church much more deeply than they interact with a denomination. How many of you guys walk around with your Southern Baptist shirts on all the time? And that's like who you are. No, you, you know, you, you are a Christian. You are involved with your church. Your church is your family. Your church is the place where you worship. Your church is who teach you how to be closer to the Lord God. And so a church that is wrought with divisions on the local level is going to fail to glorify God as it should. Thereby the aim of the church should be unity. Notice what he says in the end of verse 10. But that you be unified, that you be united rather, in the same mind and same judgment. The word for united there implies a kind of restoration that was broken. If schismata talks about the tearing apart of two things, the word united is actually used in medical ways to talk about the mending of two things. It is used sometimes by tailors to talk about the sewing together of a garment that has been damaged or ripped. So this unity that is being spoken of here is a unity that brings the church back together in a healing sense, like setting a broken bone or mending a torn net. This restoration involves the pursuit of two specific things. The first aim is that we are to have the same mind. Now this points even more specifically to our doctrine, that we are to believe the same things about Christ, about His Word, about salvation, that these are things that we are to be in deep agreement of as a church. Remember we spoke about a couple of weeks ago that diversity is important to God, but is not as important as the truth is. Diversity for the sake of variety is not acceptable when it comes to doctrine. God is not double-minded, so we must be careful not to foster an environment where opposing thinking is being simultaneously fed to the people from different places in the church. We want to be unified in what we think and what we believe. Think about the words of Philippians 3, 12-16. This is not an easy task, friends. This kind of unity that we're talking about here is something we must strive for. We won't be perfect at it, but it is something that is worth battling towards. Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, says, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now look, pay close attention to these last couple of verses. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See what Paul is saying there. Leave that verse on the screen for just a moment. Think about those last couple of verses. That a maturity in us equates to a, a willingness 
to conform our hearts and minds to the truth that God has given to us in his word. And that if anybody be averse to the true gospel that is brought to us, that the Lord God will continue to work in the heart of the one who is opposed to the things of truth until that change comes about. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have, what we have attained. So you have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ and the enemy in every step is going to try to make you peel off from the true foundations of that gospel. The church has been tasked with keeping the body of Christ pinned on that gospel, focused on the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And this is something worth striving for, friends. We are to think this way. Now be careful because there are a lot of people in this world that want to engineer your thinking. And a lot of those people are very twisted and manipulative. Don't let men decide for you how you're going to think. Let the Lord God decide for you how you're going to think. Men are not dependable as God is dependable. So in so much as Paul the Apostle is imitating Christ, he has the right to say, imitate me, which he will in chapter 11 of this epistle. But in so much as a man fails to imitate Christ, you do not need to imitate their thinking, their ways of going about Stick with the word of God. Let the word of God drive your doctrine and your understanding. If we're all doing that, there should be a great possibility for us coming together in a unified mind with a unified cause. That we are here not because of some fancy teacher that has wooed us all. We're not here because we really like the building and we really enjoy the programs, but we're here because we have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And we are determined to be unified on that central gospel that has defined us. There's a huge failing in the church today, friends, that because unity is so hard to attain, churches will decide consciously not to teach doctrine. Doctrine's too divisive. So all we're going to do is we're going we're to keep you at the, at the door of heaven. We're just going to tell you about salvation, and the rest of it we'll let you figure out on your own. That's not discipleship. What is the Great Commission? Is it to just barely get people inside the door of heaven? No, it is to go out into the world and make disciples. And disciples are men and women of good doctrine who stand on truth and follow after Christ with every fiber of their being because they have come to trust the word of God and to love the church that God has pulled them into and made them a part of. And so, friends, we must, we must reject this idea that we put doctrine to the side for the sake of unity. No, greater unity is deep in doctrine. It believes the same things. It says amen to the same things. If you say, let's push doctrine to the side, you are surrendering to ignorance. You are saying, I will be a dumb Christian as long as I'm a saved Christian, and we'll just all do that together. That's not glorifying to the Lord at all. He has given us a mind with which we are to love him. So love him with your mind and pursue good doctrine. If we say we're going to put doctrine to the side, we are inviting faction because someone's going to believe someone in your, something in your church and someone's going to get excited about some idea and it might not be biblical. And if you don't know what you believe, then the loudest voice will pull your congregation in the direction it wants to go. So you must have biblical leadership that keeps you moored to the word of God so that the loudest voice among you does not take you somewhere that you don't want to go, somewhere that doesn't glorify Jesus Christ.
Is this hard work, friends? This is hard work. This is not easy. Unity, true unity among brothers and sisters is hard work, but it is absolutely worth the effort. And I can tell you as one who has experienced the family of church, that the relationships that you have with your brothers and sisters in your church can be more significant even than the relationships that you have with your blood family. Because even blood, when you think about it, is a superficial thing. Your body is not going to last forever. Those familial connections will not matter a whole lot when you get to heaven. What will last forever? What will last forever is the gospel that has made you new and has changed the person right next to you in the same way if they're a believer. That's going to last forever. So this is your family. Do you care about family? And care about the unity of your church. The Corinthians were not really struggling with this so much, this doctrinal unity. They were battling with something lighter, with preference, with ideas of which kind of leadership they liked better. We're going to talk about that more next week. But the first aim there is to be one in doctrine. I'm going a little bit long today. I'm sorry. I'm kind of fired up. <laughs> aim number two, we are to have the same judgment together. Now, that word judgment is nome in the Greek. And I'm not any Greek scholar, but sometimes these words shade the way that we read a verse. This nome, this knowledge, is an experiential knowledge. So what it's talking about there is we need to know, but that knowledge must impact our doing as well. That our unity is not just about saying the same things or even believing the same things. It's about acting upon those unified beliefs. There must be a consistency between our head and our heart and our hands. The way that we live out our beliefs are very, very important to the unity that we can have together. The Corinthians did struggle with this. For although they received the same gospel, they were not acting in a way that honored that gospel. Paul will need to help them to see the failures that they are having and living according to the confession of faith which was made by them when Paul came and preached to them. If they do not conquer these issues of morality, if their failures to follow God's word are not addressed, then it will cause divisions between one another because sin stings. It will cause division between them and the closeness they experience with God because they can't represent him well if they are living like the fallen world out of which God plucked them. So Paul's charge to be unified in judgment and experiential knowledge means that it is not enough to say, you know what, I'm not really on board with what this church believes about Jesus and the gospel, but that just means I've got to be careful to speak the same things. I'm just going to believe what I want in my heart. No, it has to go beyond what you're willing to say. Not only would that be deceptive to your brothers and sisters, but it would only be deception temporarily because Christ has taught us that our actions come from our heart. So if you believe what your church doesn't believe and you're just going to keep it hidden for a while, eventually it comes out in the way that you live. And what does that cause? It causes strife and divisions. So we must be united in doctrine as well as in experiential knowledge and practice. Keep in mind as we conclude, guys, unity is not the same thing exactly as uniformity. Christ has not called us to be carbon copy cutouts of one another. There is beautiful diversity in God's church. And God is not telling you to surrender everything that makes you you so that you can be just like your neighbor. 
He's calling you to surrender everything he has made you uniquely to be to him so that he can make you a part of this integrated and diverse body that when working together is a blessing to the whole. Titus 3, 9 through 11 says, But avoid foolish controversies, avoid genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's how important unity is to Paul and to, and to Jesus. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is a great passage for what we're talking about here as we compare things because it's reminding us that th there are things that are small things that are not worth dividing over. We can come together and be one church if secondary issues are not totally the same. That's not what is critical. What matters the most is primary issues, the solas, the things that really lead to a person's salvation and define our understanding of the nature and work of the God that we worship. So remember, friends, that we are called not to just a membership, but to a brotherhood. We are partnering in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we represent something much holier and bigger than ourselves. As we submit ourselves to the things of God, we do so to preserve the good name of the Jesus who saved us. He is not demanding, he is appealing, for these are his brothers who should be open to his instruction based on the amazing grace that has been given to them. And shouldn't we, friends, have a heart for unity? We should not have to be told again and again to strive for this because unity leads to great peace. It leads to great joy and great brotherly love among his people. May God submit our hearts to his will and his word so that we might be the united church he desires us to be. Please bow with me as we pray. We thank you, Lord God, for giving us this word. And I pray, God, that we would take it to heart, that we would fight for the unity of our church, that we would not allow uh, apathy or dissensions to drive a wedge between us, Lord God. Let us be reaching out to one another. Let us, let us strive to be near to one another and to love each other with a, an affection that is godly and true, an affection that does not just give so that we might be glorified, but give so that you might be glorified, Lord God. May you be the, the recipient of all honor and praise for the good love that we show to one another because in, in reality, before you came into our lives, we were dead and incapable of the eternal love that you've put into us. And so thank you, God, for saving us. And we pray that that salvation would lead to uh, an otherworldly peace experienced here on earth as your church becomes a picture, a snapshot of some of the things that we will experience in heaven, Lord God. May the things that are different about us always be secondary, Lord. May we rejoice more in what brings us together by far than we fight over the things that, that, that would differentiate us apart. God, we thank you for the great glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we go out today that our hearts will be full of gladness for we can even be having this discussion today if it wasn't for the bloodshed of Jesus Christ on the cross and for his glorious resurrection. We look forward to your return, Jesus. Help us to be <clears throat> thankful and prepared for your coming. And we lift up all these words in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.